this is true uh, for you married folks in here, but for Leslie and me, our first year of marriage was difficult. And I'm not saying anything she wouldn't agree to. She would agree to it. We had a lot of hardships. We made a lot of mistakes. But one thing we did right was before getting married, we joined a premarital class at our church. And the class was very helpful for us because we were young and naive and had no idea the decisions and the commitments that we were about to make, what that was going to look like. So we went through the class, and I'm convinced that our first year of marriage, though difficult, would have been twice as challenging had we not had the proper training. One thing that the class prepared us for was for the the work that goes in to building a strong and healthy marriage. Throughout the class, as we met with and were counseled by other older couples and pastoral staff in the church, something that that we learned was that healthy relationships, strong marriages, don't just happen without any effort at all. Like I said, we were naive. We thought that it did. Thought love will keep us alive, right? But we were reminded continually that healthy relationships have to be continually nurtured and cultivated. We were reminded repeatedly that though God had brought us together, though we were ready to commit ourselves to one another, the health of our relationship, the strength of our bond was something that had to be continually worked at and cared for. We also learned that the continued health of our relationship was directly contingent upon a continual walk with Christ. We, we learned that there was a direct correlation, a direct connection between the condition of our hearts and the state of things in our marriage. Well, guess what? We're going to learn this morning that the same is true when it comes to our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. We're going to learn this morning that though we have been brought together as believers in Christ, the unity we now have in Him must be cultivated. It must be maintained. It must be cared for. It must be protected. It must be strengthened. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. We are continuing our sermon series through Ephesians. And the central focus of our passage this morning is on just that. How to, how to maintain, how to nurture, how to care for this unity that we have as a church. Now notice twice now I've said this unity that we have. Believers, you may not realize this, but Scripture clearly teaches that unity is not something we have to go out and get. Scripture is clear. 
Paul is clear here in Ephesians that unity is something that we have already through Christ. Just when a man and woman get together, the two become one flesh. When individuals come to Christ, they become unified together in Him. They become one with other believers. Again, this is a point that Paul makes repeatedly throughout the Scriptures and in the first half of this book. He says in Ephesians 1.22, for example, God has put all things under Jesus' feet. And He has made Jesus head of all things. This includes us. Christ is our head. And then in verse 23, Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ. We as believers here in this church, we are one in Christ. We are His body. When you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you were brought together with other believers under the Lordship of Christ. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2. He says, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's speaking to us Gentiles. You, he says, who were once far off have been brought near and you've been brought together through the blood of Christ. Believers, we have been brought near and we have been brought together through the person and work of Christ through His sacrifice, by His blood. And then Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, for Jesus is our believer's peace. He has made us both. He's talking about Jew and Gentile here. Jew and Gentile believers. He says He's made us both one in Christ. Christ has made us one and He has broken down in His flesh the walls that divide us. So we, we learn here and elsewhere that unity is something that we have as believers. We don't have to go out and get it. We have it, believers. But though that's the case, Scripture is clear that though we don't have to go out and attain unity, get this, we do have to maintain it. You see, though we're unified... We who have been brought together in Christ, we have a tendency to drift apart when that relationship is not nurtured and cared for and strengthened. Why? Because we're inherently selfish and self-involved and self-centered. We are. Are we not? We are. And if we don't make a conscious effort to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and who we are as His people and how we're to live and love for and care for one another, if we don't make a conscious effort to put others before ourselves, then we will not concern ourselves with others at all. And we'll be only about ourselves. We'll be only about what we want. And the natural result from that will be division. Count my word. That will happen. It will. That's why Paul, 
in this book and in others spends so much time focusing in on unity. Times I'll have married couples stop by my office who are having issues and I'll normally begin by reminding them of the vows that they made to one another and reminding them about the commitment they made to one another and how they have made a commitment, they've made a vow to become one. And then I'll explain to them what this relationship, what oneness is supposed to look like, and then I'll try to give them counsel on how to get there. That's what Paul does in this passage and in Ephesians. That's what he does. He explains to his Christian audience that they are united in Christ and then explains to them what unity is supposed to look like and then he gives them steps on how to care for and strengthen the unity that they now have. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to focus in on this first passage here in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. And I want you to notice three things that that help Christians with unity. We're going to talk about the call, we're going to talk about the characteristics and the causes for unity. First notice the call for unity. The call for unity. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, as we've said many times already in this study, this right here is a pivotal verse in this book. This verse marks the division in the book. For the first three chapters, Paul has been telling the believers of his day of all the wonderful things that God has done for them in saving them. And he's been telling them of who they are in Christ and how they have been brought together in him and here Paul says in chapter 4 verse 1 he tells them in this swing verse in the second half of this book Paul says in light of all those things in light of what God has done for you in saving you Paul says I urge you to live in that reality and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called walk worthy for God That's what Paul says. Paul's basically saying here, because you've been redeemed by God's grace through the person and work of Christ, because you who were once far off because of your sin have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, he says, because of all those things, walk worthy as followers of Christ. And Paul goes on to explain in the rest of this chapter and in the rest of this book what that looks like, what it looks like to walk worthy. And he shows us here in this passage that one of the main ways we walk worthy is by maintaining, by cultivating, by caring for the unity that we have together as followers of Christ. Husbands and wives... Just like you are to be working on your marriage, we, believers, are to be working on our relationship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we do a lot of the things that we do here. Do you know that? That's why we have Bible block quilt groups, craft Sundays for the ladies, light keepers for our 50-plus crowd, 
small group ministries, men's and women's Bible studies, men's and women's retreats, men's breakfasts and fish fries and ladies' teas and chili cook-offs and Thanksgiving dinners. The reason we do all of that and more is because we've been called by God to care for and cultivate and strengthen the bond that we have as believers in Christ. Paul saw this as being of the utmost importance, and we should as well. Notice he says, I, therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to do this. He says, I urge you to walk worthy. I urge you to walk in unity. Now, why does Paul bring up his imprisonment again here? He's brought it up twice now in this book. He brings it up twice. Why is he bringing it up again? Is he seeking sympathy from his audience? Is that why he does this? No, I believe what Paul is doing here, he's making a subtle point. He's showing the believers of his day the kind of commitment that they need to be making before the Lord and for one another. Notice he refers to himself again here as a prisoner of the Lord. Though Paul was in prison in Rome at the time, he says the reason he is in chains is because of the fact that he is sold out for Christ and committed to God's people. And again, he is calling for God's people to make this kind of commitment. I also believe he brings this up to show the importance of what he's about to say here about unity. I believe he's making the point, get this, that him being in prison is worth it if they will in turn experience true unity as God's people. Remember, Paul is talking to both Jew and Gentile believers here, and he's telling them that in Christ, they are now one. In Christ, there is no longer Jew and Gentile in a spiritual sense because Christ has broken down that wall that once divided them. And remember we said a few weeks ago that this was one of the main reasons, this message here was one of the main reasons why Paul was arrested initially. That's what brought on all this trouble to begin with. Remember before going to Rome... Paul was in Jewish custody and one of the main reasons why was because of this message that Jew and Gentile were now one in Christ. And I believe that Paul is making a point here that the trials that he has endured for them is worth it if they will in turn be unified and strengthen the bond that they have in Christ. I believe that Paul is showing them here, him being arrested, get this, is worth them being unified. Why? Why is unity so important? Why does does Paul talk about unity in every book that he writes? Simple. So we've said in the past, this unity and division can rip a church apart. It can, it has, and it will. The strongest of churches cannot withstand division and discord and disunity. 
because Scripture is clear that the church is the primary vehicle through which God works in the world, it's essential that we strive as believers and as a church to remain unified and nurture and care for and strengthen the unity that we have as believers in Christ so that we can remain strong as a church, so that we can remain healthy as a church, and so that we can continue to advance God's kingdom and His world. This unity will end that mission. It will. It will rip any church apart. That's why we must strive to maintain unity. We must take it seriously, folks. We must. Now here's the next question we need to ask. Though unity is called for, how do we get there? How do we get there? What what does it even look like? What does unity look like? What what does Christian unity look like? Well, Paul gives us several characteristics here. Notice the characteristics of unity. Look at verses 2 through 3. Paul says this, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says here, this is what Christian unity looks like. Notice he gives us five characteristics. Number one, humility. Remember, we mentioned a few sermons ago, the reason why disunity is one of the most common problems in our churches is because pride is the most common problem in our lives. It is. Therefore, unity, it needs to be, humility, it needs to be talked about, needs to be addressed. Ligon Duncan said this when commenting on this passage of Scripture. Look at this, this is so good. He says this, humility is absolutely essential for the cultivation of unity in the church. That's his quote. Paul makes that exact point here and elsewhere. He makes the point that there can be no unity without humility. Remember a few sermons back, I made this point as well. I I said that for unity to occur corporately, get this, there must be humility individually. There must be. Can you imagine what the church would look like if you and I, if, if all of us, if we had the hard attitude that said, I'm no more important than anyone else? An attitude that simply said, you know what, I want to concentrate on others. I want to build others up. I want to encourage others. I want to think of others more than I think of myself. I want to hear what other people have to say instead of just expressing my own opinion all the time. I want to put the cares and concerns of others first. Can you imagine what the church would look like if this became the desire of our hearts to do this? Paul says you cannot have true Christian unity without that kind of humility. Second, he talks about gentleness. This word can also be translated meekness. Now, if you uh, have been in church long enough, you've heard countless pastors and Bible teachers make the point that meekness is not weakness, right? You've probably heard that before. Well, that's what it's not, but what is it? Okay, it's not... It's not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. What is it? Well, a simple definition is this. Gentleness, meekness, means strength that is harnessed. Strength 
under control. Let me give you an example of this before I define it any further. Let's say I went up to Gerald McCoy. He's a defensive tackle for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Here, here he is right here. Let's say I just saw him on the street, and I walked up behind him, and I reared back, and I just slapped him as hard as I could across the back of his head. And he turns around to me, and he restrains himself from hurting me. Hopefully he'd do that. Hopefully I'd never be dumb enough to do anything like that. You know? But that's meekness. That's meekness. Though this guy here, one of the the best defensive tackles in the NFL, he's a beast. Though he has the strength to end me with one forearm, he restrains himself. You got what meekness is? Gentleness? It has to do with being wronged in the worst way and being able to retaliate, but not. That's meekness. Remember what Jesus said about this? He said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Jesus is not speaking against self-defense here, but he's saying if someone wrongs you, if they insult you, though you may be able to lash out in revenge, don't keep your strength in check. Gentleness and meekness also has to do with using strength for the benefit of others. I think of the countless number of of firemen and policemen and others who rushed in to the World Trade Center on 9-11 laying down their lives to get out as many as they could. That's gentleness. That's meekness. That's strength that is harnessed. That's strength that's under control. It's a servant-minded strength. Again, folks, imagine what our churches would look like if we were not quick to be angry and to retaliate when someone in the church wronged us. And think about what our churches would look like if we used the strength that we have to the benefit and for the betterment of others. Can you imagine that? Paul also mentions patience. The word patience used here in this context has to do with being patient toward aggravating people. Folks, let me assure you of something. If you stay here with us long enough at this church, though this church is a great church, I believe that with my whole heart, people are going to get under your skin. People are going to aggravate you. I know I've aggravated many of you at times, and I know you've aggravated others at times. We have to be patient with folks in order to experience true unity. At times, we got to give each other a little leeway. We got to cut each other some slack. We got to be quick to forgive when aggravating people aggravate us and offensive people offend us. Oftentimes, we're the exact opposite of that, aren't we? We really are. I've found that for, for some strange reason, some of the most impatient and unforgiving people are found in churches, unfortunately. Someone messes up, we're ready right there to be judge, jury, and executioner. Merciless. Pray that not be said of us because our bond as believers, the unity that we have is contingent upon us being patient and, and, and kind with others. Now, when someone sins, when someone messes up, it falls off into sin, we need to treat 
sin seriously. We need to deal with it appropriately. But we also need to be patient. We need to be kind and we need to be ready to forgive. A fourth characteristic is love. Look at the end of verse 2 again. Paul says, bearing with one another in love. I love that, bearing with one another. You know what that means? It means what it sounds like, to put up with someone. Paul is saying here, put up with people. No matter how aggravating they might be, put up with one another. Now, if we left it at that, we could kind of do that in a cold and callous way, right? But notice, Paul adds the phrase, in love. Bear with one another. Put up with one another in love. Now, that changes everything. And that word, of course, is agape. Imagine that. This is a choosing love. This is a love of the will. It refers to a a sacrificial and unconditional type of love. So Paul tells the Christians of his day, not only are they to nurture and care for and protect and strengthen Christian unity in humility and gentleness and in patience, but they're also to do so in a loving way. Jesus made this point over and over again in his earthly ministry, did he not? In Luke 6, he says this. He says, love your enemies. Pretty clear what he's saying there, right? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Instead, Jesus says, love your enemies expecting nothing in return. Folks, that's agape love. That's what Paul's calling for there in the church. That's the type of love that Jesus expected from his followers. And not only did he expect it, not only did he teach it, but he exampled this for us, didn't he? In fact, Jesus exampled all of these characteristics, did he not? He did. He was humble. He came not to be served, but to serve. He was also gentle and patient, though he was despised and rejected by men, though the people of his day falsely accused him and nearly beat him to death and then finished the job at the cross. Jesus did not respond with hate and judgment, but instead he responded with love. At the cross, we're told he prayed to the Father for his persecutors, asking him to forgive them. And then he willingly gave his life away so that they and we, the very people who have despised and rejected him, might have life in and through him. That's what it means to bear with one another in love. And notice this. Jesus, not only did he put up with us, did he bear with us in love, put up with our sin. He took sin seriously. He condemned sin. But he put up with our sin. He also took on our sin, didn't he? Out of a love for us so that we in turn could be made righteous before God through our faith in him. Jesus was a perfect example of this. And Paul tells us here that this is expected from Christ's followers and is a surefire way to build a strong and healthy church. Now, how does bearing with one another in love do that? How does it help to strengthen and maintain the unity that we have? Well, think about it. When someone wrongs you, when someone sins against you and you respond in love, a lot of the time that 
takes care of a lot of it, doesn't it? Not always, but a lot of the time it does. And it protects unity and may even serve to grow the other person. But when you respond in anger and when you respond with revenge, when you respond with hate and retaliate, does that make matters better? No. Makes matters much, much worse. And when done within the context of the church can cause dissension and can rip the church apart. Solomon said it like this in Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. His point here is that love has the ability to extinguish a lot of the damage that sin can cause. So if we're going to nurture and cultivate and care for and strengthen and protect the unity that we have in Christ, we must persevere together in love. There's a fifth and final characteristic here that God's people must have if they're going to properly maintain and cultivate and strengthen and protect unity, and that characteristic is passion. If we, the church, are going to care for and strengthen unity in our midst, if we're going to become more unified, we're going to have to become passionate about unity. We're going to have to passionately pursue unity. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I like the way the NIV puts it. It translates it like this. Make every effort to keep the unity. Make every effort to keep the unity. Paul's point here is this. Unity is worth fighting for. Which again is one of the reasons why he's in prison. And here he calls the Christians of his day and his greater Christian audience to make every effort to passionately pursue unity. His point here is that we're not to just sit back, sort of passively hope that unity happens. We're to make every effort. We're to take the initiative. We're to put in the work to maintain and strengthen and protect the unity that we have as believers and as a church. Believers, what would that look like for you to do that? To work, to maintain, to cultivate unity. Maybe there's someone in this church you just need to encourage. Maybe you've taken them for granted in their service to you. Parents, maybe you've noticed a certain child care worker who puts in work week in and and week out and a lot of time to prepare and teach your kids. Maybe you need to pass on an encouraging word to them. Maybe you're in a small group or a Bible study and you need to pass on an encouraging word to the one who prepares your studies each and every week or to the family that hosts the small group meeting each and every week or twice a month. Whatever that is, whatever comes to mind, whatever encouraging word you feel led to pass along, please do so. That promotes unity. Maybe there's someone in here you need to forgive or or someone you need to seek forgiveness from. Maybe there is someone you need to cut a little slack with and, and bear with and love. Whatever that is. Make every effort to cultivate and strengthen unity. Now let's be honest. When looking back at these, easier said than done. Am I right? It's true. I mean, how many of you would say that humility and gentleness and patience and sacrificial unconditional love just comes naturally to you? If so, stay after church. I want to talk to you. Have you counsel me, okay? Yeah. How do 
do we put others before ourselves when we're naturally proud? How do we not retaliate when we're wrong? And how do we put up with aggravating people in love and make every effort to, to maintain unity against all odds when at times we want to do anything but that? Well, Paul is going to show us in verses 4 through 6 by sharing with us several causes, several reasons, several motivators for unity. Look at these verses with me, verses 4 through 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice here, the way Paul motivates his readers to strive to maintain unity is by once again reminding them of who they are and reminding them of the unity that they now have through Christ. A key word in this passage is what? One. That's right. Pretty obvious, right? It's used seven times here. Paul is emphasizing here the unity that we now have as believers. He says there's one body. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but the church is made up of a diverse group of people, right? People you would not expect to be friends. People who may have even at one time been enemies, but the gospel brings them together and Christ brings them together like nothing else could. Paul says, remember that. Remember that you, as diverse as you are, are one body. He also says, there's one spirit. There is one spirit who indwells me and indwells you. Think about that. Shouldn't we be unified? We're indwelled with the same spirit. That should unify us. When we allow ourselves to be be controlled, to be guided, to be directed by the Spirit of God, He leads us and He grows us in godliness and He unites us together. This is very important right here that, that that we realize that to maintain unity, we must have the same Spirit that's in me, that's in you believers, growing us. And bringing us together. This must be a work of the Spirit. It won't happen apart from Him working in and through us. He says you have one hope to your call. Paul's point here is that all believers, without exception, have a general calling on their life in the same end. All of us believers are called to love God, love one another, worship Him in both word and deed, be witnesses for Christ, make disciples, and advance His kingdom in His world. And we also have the same hope, don't we? We have the same end in that we as believers are all promised eternity in His presence, in glory, forever. That should motivate us. We also have one Lord. Paul says you have one Lord that you live for and that you belong to and follow. There is also one faith. We don't have differing and opposing doctrines, do we, that we embrace. We have the same book, the word of truth, the Bible. We're not just to be unified for unity's sake. We're to be unified around the truth in this word. That's why we preach it and teach it every chance we get when we gather together as believers because we have one faith. There's also one baptism. Now, Paul could be talking about either the spiritual baptism or the physical baptism here or both. I believe he probably has both in mind, but I don't know for sure. There is one spiritual baptism, 
by which we're, when the Spirit of God does a work in us, when He changes us, He places us into the believing body of Christ, the universal church. He brings us together as believers. And we also have the physical act of water baptism, which was an ordinance left by Christ for all churches. And as we said a few weeks ago, water baptism was extremely important then and it should be today. Though it was never meant to be a a means to salvation, though there are no special blessings attached to it, it does serve as a public testimony of one's identity with Christ and their identity with the family of God, the people of God. And lastly, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. In other words, we as believers all belong to and follow the same God, the God of the Bible, the God exists who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are all, as we're taught in Scripture, as believers equal before Him. So though there may be differences among us, though we may have racial and cultural and socioeconomic differences and have different personality traits and different interests and different giftings, those, listen to me, those differences pale in comparison to what unites us. That's Paul's point. You got me? There are many things in our churches today that are causing disunity in our churches, but Paul's point here is that what unites us as believers should far outweigh those things that have a tendency to divide us. Though we may be different in a lot of ways, racially and ethnically and culturally and socioeconomically and socially, believers, we are one body and we have one spirit one hope one calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all let me end with this maybe you're here this morning and after all this after going through all this you're you're still convinced that what i'm talking about this morning is unattainable You think that walking in unity is just a pipe dream because you look at your own life, your relationship, maybe with family, with ex-wife or ex-husband or or with your kids or with your co-workers just in shambles. You think this is just a pipe dream. If you're here this morning and you're questioning whether or not unity is even possible, I, I urge you, once again, turn your focus to the Lord Jesus. Consider Jesus for just a moment. Folks, Jesus left us, one, the perfect example of how to live in relationship with God and with each other. And he also provided for us a way through his life, through his death and resurrection, to be made right with God so that we could in turn experience the type of unity we've been talking about here this morning with one another. Because Christ who knew no sin, became sin for us and was punished in our place, he in turn is able to offer us his righteousness and a chance to be at peace with God so that we can be at peace with one another. That may be the reason you're 
not at peace with one another is because you're not at peace with God. If that's you, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, I urge you to do so today. Do not leave here without making that decision. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior because only when you're at peace with God can you truly be at peace with one another. Let's pray.